to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Um, we, we kick off our Ephesians series this week, and we're really excited about it. We're going to be in this book for about 12 weeks, so pretty much the whole summer we're going to be in this book, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, as we dive into it, I, I was um, thinking about the talk tonight, and it reminded me of the, the, um, the, the, the first year that I spent when I got here to Colorado. And, uh, you know, Russ, you were talking about the mountains and all of that. And I, I grew up in Malaysia, I and mean, I've told you this, and so many of you know this, but... Um, from Malaysia, you know, we lived in Oregon. My parents went to Bible school there. I know that was quite a jump from Malaysia to Oregon, but that's a long story in itself. Moved back to Malaysia, and then I, um, I came out to Oklahoma to go to college there. Well, Oklahoma, as wonderful as it is, and, you know, here's Brian right here in the second row from Tulsa. Woo-woo. Um, as wonderful as Oklahoma is, it's alarmingly flat. Um, I mean, you know, not as flat as, say, Kansas, but... Still, compared to Colorado, it's, it's flat. So when I moved here in the summer of 2000, I realized that there's this Colorado culture of, of uh, you know, backpacking and hiking and camping and all this stuff. And you have to understand, I was, uh, I was 22 uh, in the summer of 2000 and um, fresh out of college and just sort of had this desire to almost kind of reinvent myself, if you will. You're sort of like, hey, I'm going to explore. I'm going to learn some new hobbies. I'm going to acquire some new habits. And, and sort of by coincidence, I guess, I had bought a, an old Jeep Cherokee. And so when I drove into Colorado in my Jeep Cherokee, loaded up with stuff and seeing the mountains, I just thought, yes, this is going to be the new me. You know, I'm going to be all Colorado. And so I started hanging out with our college group called The Mill. And, um, and, and at the time, the only people who went to The Mill were people who were campers. You know, like they would they would come to the mill on Friday night, and then their cars would be loaded up with, like, tents and all this stuff, and, and they would just head up to the mountains right away. It wasn't like, you know, the question was, what are you going to do after the mill? And almost everybody said, well, we're going to go off-roading, or we're going to hit these trails, or we're going to, you know. I'm like, dude, it's 10 o'clock at night, you know, but the fun was just beginning. And so I, I became convinced that, okay, this is, this is what I needed to do. This is what I needed to be. And you have to understand, so I... I my parents are all in Malaysia. My sister and her husband, they live in the UK. And so I came out here without friends or family, and, and I wasn't married yet. And, and uh, I was living with a host family um, from New Life, and, and I wasn't uh, employed by the church. I was just sort of given a stipend every month, and I was kind of interning under our worship pastor, Ross Parson. So here's Matthew and all these other guys in the worship ministry. And, you know, when the weekend comes, they're all going home with their families, and I'm sort of like just a little bit feeling left out, feeling like I'm not sure, quite sure where I belong. And, so, and then I go to the mill to hang out with people my age, and they're all going camping. So I think, camping, that's the key. Uh, and then, with enough months of being here, I realized that there is this special event that happens a couple times a year, I guess, here, called the REI Garage Sale. And, uh, and the REI Garage Sale apparently is just, it's epic. You know, that's what you need to do. You need to, like, go early and maybe even camp out and just get ready for all the deals. Well, I wasn't sure that I wanted to camp out, you know, to get deals, but I, I, I woke up earlier than normal and, and headed over there and tried to see what I could find. And I bought this tent, this two-man North Face 
four-season tent, you know. I was like, yes. Why it needed to be four-season, I don't know, but I bought it. And, uh, and it was on sale at the REI garage sale. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, so I got a bunch of stuff, and, and, and I started to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do the Colorado thing. Um, except that I never really used that tent. And uh, when I was talking with a friend of mine who discovered that I had the tent and I'd never used it, he's like, bro, let's at least like camp out on the New Life Field or something. So we did that. We did that one time. And, uh, and I, I, I realized that that's not really my thing. So I like it, you know, but I wasn't going to be sort of this rugged Colorado dude. But as I was thinking about this talk, the reason I'm telling you that story is because I think in all of us there, there's some sort of desire to answer this question of where, where do we belong? Where do we fit in? What's our place? Who are our people, you know? Who are my peeps? Am I like with the camping peeps? Am I with the, you know, who, who, who am I with? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Maybe even on a bigger scale, Francis Schaeffer used to call this the sense of cosmic alienation, the sense of being isolated, of being alone in, in the universe, this sort of, this feeling of like, goodness gracious, what, what am I here for? And, and, and do I matter? And, and where do I belong? And, and where's my place? And where do I fit in? And, and to a, to a large degree, all of us, maybe we're not always aware of it, but to a large degree, that, that, those sorts of thoughts or questions um, affect us, and they, and they get inside of us, and we, we wrestle with that, and we think about it. And in our culture, just, you know, culture in general, you see people trying to answer the question of why do I do certain things, or why do I need to try hard, or where do I find meaning to my life? And they answer that question by saying, oh, well, within yourself. Well, the answer is sort of within you. And so uh, the other night, uh, we, we don't often, you know, watch like The Biggest Loser or anything, but we somehow we flipped them through the channels and, and it was The Biggest Loser or maybe it was Losing It with Jillian or some show, weight loss show or whatever. And these people are like working incredibly hard and she's trying to do sort of like part-time physical trainer, part-time like psychologist, you know, she's trying to like dig into, if you've ever seen the show. Anyway. So she's talking to them about, okay, why do you want to do this? And all these people invariably are through tears saying, because I'm worth it. And I'm doing this for me because I am special and I need to acknowledge how beautiful I really am on the inside. And sorry, that's really annoying to talk in that voice. I'll stop now. But inevitably the answer is, I'm going to find meaning, I'm going to find motivation, I'm going to find all the answers to this, this, this problem of, of, of being isolated or alone by saying, you know what, it's all within me, and it's all inside of me, and I, I can provide an answer to that question. And really, all of us, whether we realize it or not, we're sort of products, if you will, of the Romantic era, you know, in the 1800s, where the, this whole way of thinking began to shift from trying to find meaning through something bigger than ourselves to saying, you know what, man's the measure of all things. And you know what, you and your happiness and sort of this be true to yourself and discover who you are. If you know who you are and then you can be true to that and then that's the way that you're going to feel okay about life. And so we see that all over the place. I mean, uh, you, you know, I watch a sports interview and a guy will say something really terrible about the other team and then they'll come back, the reporters will come back to him the next day and say, do you regret, you know, talking down about the other team or insulting your coach or, you know, skipping practice or whatever? And he'll say, hey man, I'm just being true to myself, you know? A ain't nobody going to change me, you know? It's like, hmm, okay. So that's the highest measure then is as long as we're true to ourselves, then we've sort of got this going. Is that right? And then as Christians... We have a little version of this. Uh, we have to be careful because there's good things about this. But as Christians, it's easy to sort of say, okay, 
well, now that I'm saved and now that I, you know, I'm following Jesus, I guess the way that I'm going to find meaning to my spiritual life is if I can just discover some, some, some gifts and, and maybe my own purpose and my own little micro-purpose. And listen, I'm, I'm okay with that. I understand that God has purposes for each of us and God has a plan for our lives and all that. I, I'm comfortable with that. But, you know, I think sometimes we zero in far too closely on ourselves and our own little stories. And we're so concerned with saying, how can I make my life meaningful? And we say, aha, it's by discovering what my little micro-purpose is. And we're so concerned, we say, well, what is my micro-purpose? What is my little micro-calling? And then that translates into unhappiness at a job, maybe even unhappiness in a marriage, or maybe unhappiness in all these different environments, because ultimately I'm not fulfilled, and maybe, <gasps> horror of horrors, I'm not fulfilling my little micro-purpose. I'm poking fun at it a little bit. But I think our little micro-purposes only make sense when we see the macro story of what God is doing. It only makes sense when we see what God is doing. And this is what Paul is setting us up for in Ephesians. Because this letter, more than any of, more, more than any of Paul's other letters, this letter is cosmic. I mean, this letter has, it's, it's, it's Paul talking about salvation in a very massive universe type language you'll see phrases in here about jesus being above all things you'll see phrases about jesus finally bringing all things together under his feet and there's stuff there's language in here that's just wow it's massive and the book itself is interesting in the way it's structured because there's six chapters in the book of ephesians and the the first three are kind of a lot of prayers but it's paul giving us this massive cosmic picture He's almost, it's almost like Paul's saying, do you realize that salvation and personal don't really go together? Yes, God wants to save individuals, but his plan of salvation is cosmic. That God's plan is actually to rescue the whole universe, to rescue the whole cosmos, to remake it. That it's massive. And he's setting us up for that in the first three chapters. And then four, five, and six is... A kind of, okay, it almost seems like, well, what happened, Paul? What happened to, like, cosmic language, Paul, and, like, glory language? Because 4, 5, and 6 is like, you know, um, here, here, this is how you should walk, and this is how you should live, and this is how you should handle your bosses and your employees, and this is how you should live in your home and in your marriage, and this is how you should pray and all this stuff. And you're like, Paul, what happened to, like, the cosmic stuff? And it almost seems like it doesn't fit, but actually, of course, it does. That it's only when we see the massive story that, w- that we can make sense of our little stories and how then we should do marriage well and how then we should handle relationships well. Because the reason, as believers, the reason we want to do those things well by the power of the Holy Spirit is not because I'm worth it and not because I've got meaning inside of me, but because you and I are part of this massive story. Does that make sense? And so we'll, we'll get to a point here where we talk about marriage. We talk about all this stuff. And, and we're going to talk about it remembering that the way Paul has set us up is by saying, do you see this massive story that you're part of? Because it's not about just saying, okay, let's just get right to the nuts and bolts and give me something practical and to the point. It doesn't quite work unless we catch the big picture. Ephesus as a city is an interesting city. Um, it's, it was kind of surrounded by, by about 230 different independent communities uh, in the Roman region called Asia Minor. And, uh, and it was also a city of pagan worship. In fact, they, they, there was this temple built to the god, uh, goddess Artemis. 
And in Acts 19, you can read about it, that's the Greek name for Artemis, but the Roman name for it is Diana. And so depending on what source materials you read, you'll either hear her name as Diana or as Artemis. It's the same person. But, here, but, but it was very, uh, it, it, it shaped the culture of the city, this temple, this gigantic temple that, that, um, of, of Artemis worship. And this church in Ephesus is interesting because Apollos likely founded it and then Paul shows up there, intends to kind of, he's on a missionary journey, intends to just stay a few days, ends up staying for three years. How about that, you know? I'm just going to come speak for the weekend. Uh, I think I'll be here a while, you know? Wow. And he ends up staying for a while and develops such a strong relationship with them. In fact, when you read in the book of Acts, when Paul's about to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders, they're, they're like hanging on to him and saying, Paul, don't go. And there's weeping and there's just intense emotion. You also realize that Paul's really invested in this church and in this city because Paul personally mentors the guy who takes over the church from him, a young man named Timothy. So there's, there's something about this place. Now, Given that Paul has so much vested interest in this church in Ephesus and all this stuff, why is it that Ephesians, unlike so many of Paul's other letters, how come there's not a lot of personal references, not a lot of names, not a lot of greet so-and-so and, and, hey, tell them to stop doing that and tell, you know, how come there's not a lot of that? The big reason for that, likely, is that Ephesians was written not just for the church in Ephesus, but was meant to be passed around to all those different churches. Remember I told you Ephesus was surrounded by like 230 independent communities. So there were churches in those regions, and Paul wrote this sort of in mind to say, okay, I'm writing it to you guys, but would you guys, almost like an airline strategy, hub and spoke, would you guys take this and then go pass it around and, and, and have copies of it and all that sort of stuff, okay? So that's, that's the setup for this. Everybody good? Yup. Ephesians 1, verse 1 through 6. Let's start from the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point out a few things as we're going through this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is interesting because... Uh, maybe at first blush, and when you're listening to this being read, if you were a Gentile in this congregation, you would have said, Our Father? God? Our Father? And the point goes on. I'll, I'll, make, I'll come back to that in a moment. And he also names Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to, to any of us who've grown up in America or grown up around church stuff or Christianese, you know, which is Christian jargon stuff, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, those, words, those three words don't mean anything to us. But those three words were explosive to Paul's listeners. Because you see, the first word, Lord, is this Greek word, Kyrios. It's this title, Lord, Kyrios. And, and, and it was significant because Caesar used that title of himself. Caesar, the ruler of Rome, who believed that he had brought peace to the known world, and he was so great, and he'd done all this stuff. And so when he walked into an arena, they would say, Hail to Caesar, Lord and Savior. Isn't that interesting? They would use those terms to him, obviously by his request. See, hail to Caesar, Kyrios and Soter, Lord and Savior. It's you, Caesar. You're the one who's bringing peace to the world and order to our society. You're the hope. You're the one. That's what they viewed him as. So when Paul says, our Lord Jesus, what's he saying? He's saying, I want you to realize that the real hope of the world is Jesus. That the real king of the world is Jesus. That, the, that our, any hope that we have of things being set right, of things being set 
correctly and being put back in order. Any hope of that is not from a human mortal person who's coming to do this stuff, but it's from Jesus. In fact, in the later chapters in Acts, it says that the Christians were, they were worried about him because they followed another king than Caesar. They didn't acknowledge Caesar as their king. They acknowledged Jesus as their king. And this was the beginning of Christians sort of living subversively. They tried to be good citizens and did whatever they could. But when push came to shove, their king was Jesus. And so Paul says this, Grace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus. Now Christ, what's that? Isn't that his last name, Jesus Christ? Yeah. No. <laughs> It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. In fact, it really would have sounded greetings from our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And that word to Jewish ears would have meant something. That was Paul saying, you remember that you have all this hope that you've, you've gathered up over the years by listening to Isaiah's prophecies that one day Yahweh, our God, was going to act and be faithful to his promise and be good to us. And you remember we had this hope that one day Messiah would come and start to set things right and, and all this stuff and all this. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had that hope. And Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, Jesus, remember him? Uh-huh, he's that guy. Really? Yeah. And the crux of the gospel that these guys preached was an announcement. It wasn't a sales pitch. It wasn't a please believe. It wasn't a persuasive. It wasn't a if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? It was an announcement. It was the real king of the world has arrived. That's why we're calling him Lord. And the Messiah, the long-awaited hope, the person who was going to come and set it all right, Jesus, it's him. He's, that's why Peter stands up. In the, early in the book of Acts, Acts 2 or 3, and he says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. So in the New Testament, when you see this phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just blah, 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 blah. Skip over that. As if it were sort of, you know, you know whatever, Doogie Howser, MD or something. You know? No, these, 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 these terms that Paul and these apostles are using means something. When they said Jesus is Lord, that clicked with an audience that were Roman citizens and said, Jesus is the real Lord. When they said Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, that resonated with Jewish ears and said, you mean that one, the, the one that we've been waiting for? Our hope? Yes, that's him. So it's a very particular thing that Paul's saying. And we'll read on here. And praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is is even more interesting, particularly to Jewish ears. We've already, he's already said grace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he says, praise be to the God our Father. In fact, you could translate this more, more directly, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're like, okay, Glenn, who cares? What's that? It's an opening line from a prayer, right? I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's not just an opening line from any prayer. It's an opening line of a very typical Jewish prayer. The old Jewish prayer would begin, Baruch Atai Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, Lord our God Almighty, King of the universe. But what does Paul twist it, change it up here? He says, blessed be God, our fa the Father of our Lord Jesus. You're like, wait a second. We're used to saying, blessed be God, the Father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jesus? Yeah. And in that one little opening sentence of a prayer, Paul is saying, 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were supposed to be. Paul's in that one little line is saying, do you understand that Jesus completed what God began in Abraham? That Jesus is the completion of it. He's the culmination of it. And so it's God, the fa- our Father, and the, let's see, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now if you read that as blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, you can really see his train of thought. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. We're doing the blessing, but really only because he's done the blessing. Who's blessed us, let's see, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Blessed us. Another phrase that we just zip over. Yeah, God's blessed us. Sure. But do you know that in the Jewish story, in the Old Testament, there are very, there's a very specific family line that this is said of. In Genesis, who does God bless? He blesses the very first man. He blesses Adam. Then after the flood, who does he bless? Noah. Be fruitful. Do, do this again. Fill the earth again. And after that, he picks one family. It was our Old Testament reading tonight. The family of Abraham and says, I'll bless this family. And then you go on, and you, if you read it, God directly blesses Abraham, God directly blesses Isaac, God directly blesses Jacob, and all of their descendants, then they pass on the blessing. And the blessing goes on. And once in a while, someone from that family line gets this almost direct blessing. So for Paul to say, wait a second, this God, the God who began that story so long ago, now has blessed you, he's telling you something. He's telling you that you're somehow, you've somehow gotten in on that story. So wait a second. I'm used to hearing, yeah, I know God blessed Abraham, and I know God blessed the house of Israel. I know God blessed me? How did that happen? What is this? What kinds of blessings is this? What are the spiritual blessings? There's a number that Paul lists out, specifically in the book of Ephesians alone, and we're just going to look at a, two of them, and then the third one we'll spend the most time on tonight. The first, one of the first blessings when we come to Christ, and he says this in Ephesians 2, is something we call regeneration. It's the idea of being made alive. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. He says, look, once you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive. You're living. You're alive. Whoa. And that meant something very particular again. Ooh, I'm debating whether to say something about that. The way that the covenant worked was if you were unfaithful to covenant, you deserved what? Death. In fact, when God first made covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, there's this, there's this scene that's kind of a funny scene, but animals are cut in two. You remember this? There's animals kind of cut in two, and Abraham walks between. Well, what is that all about? That's not kind of some kind of weird like ritual thing. No, it's a picture, symbol, language of this, that... It's saying, I will be faithful to you, and if I ever am unfaithful to you, may I be broken in two, just as these animals are broken in two. What happened to Israel when they broke covenant with Yahweh? Them as a nation got broken in two, Israel and Judah. Jesus shows up and says, this is the new covenant, right? He says, this is my body which is broken for you. He's saying, 
I'm taking the place of the one who will be broken. I'll take the place of the one who's been unfaithful in covenant so that you can be made alive. I'll let my body be broken so that your body can come alive. Regeneration is an amazing spiritual blessing. But a second thing, and Paul talks about this more in some of his other letters, is this blessing that we call justification of being declared right, of being in right standing, that because Jesus has stood in for us and taken the weight of, 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 this, of, this, of, of, of our sin, God looks at us and declares us righteous. Oh, that's awesome. But this third thing that Paul zooms in on is remarkable. Adoption, being made sons and daughters. Verse 5, destined to be adopted as sons. There's three verbs in particular in that little passage that I want us just to spend a little time on to talk about what that means. He says in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Now that's amazing. Chose us in him before the creation of the world. That means that making you part of this story was not an afterthought for God. It was not a plan B. It was not a, well, let's just try with this Abraham family in Israel, and if that doesn't work, let's just open it up to the world. No. The plan all along was to rescue all people. All people. Paul got that. He saw it, and that's what made Paul's message so interesting, is because he's saying, no, 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 no. Look, it's not like God, yeah, I worked with this nation Israel and gave them a law, and they were kind of bad, and that didn't work out, so whoops, let's just send Jesus, you know, would you come, and then let's, hey, anyone else want a shot at this? No? Okay. Uh. Paul is saying, before the creation of the world, God chose us. Now think of this language again. If you have to remember, this congregation in Ephesus is a mix of Jew and Gentile. And here Paul's saying, to all of you, he chose you. Now, if you were a Jew in that congregation listening to that letter read, you might have bristled a little bit and said, whoa, 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 whoa. chose is kind of our verb. We're chosen. But remember that when God chose Abraham, it was our Old Testament reading tonight on purpose. What did he say to Abraham? In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Which says God's plan all along was to bless how many families? All. What, what people? All people. What nation? Every nation. Even before the creation of the world, he chose us. He saw this. He saw you. He saw me. Now that means something personally, but it also means something on a massive scale. It means God's plan from the beginning was all people's. And that helps us make sense of this next phrase. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, since the Reformation, this verse, this, this phrase has caused some, some problems. Predestined. Oh, here we go. Predestination. Some of you are like, I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> Which is fine. It's totally cool. But there's a, there, there are some people who believe that because of this verse, that there are people who were predestined to be Christians, and then there were others who were not, and I don't really know why, but hate it for them. No. Think about the setup of what Paul is saying. The word that is used there for predestined is this Greek word, prorismos, and if you were to go in a Greek airport, which 
by some fluke, you won the lottery and you're taking a vacation to Greece. If you were to go in a Greek airport, you would see over the departure gates, Proorismos Roma, or Proorismos London, or wherever your destination was going to be. Proorismos does not mean fate. It doesn't mean fated, as in God fated some people to be Christians and other people not to be. Whoops. Proorismos means it was God's destined, the destination that God had in mind from the very beginning was himself. The destination that God had in mind from the beginning for all people was that they would be adopted into his family. This is not about individuals being chosen and individuals not being chosen. This is about Paul saying to a mixed congregation of part Jew and part Gentile, saying, no, 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 listen, even before the creation of the world, God chose you. And a Gentile listening would have said, eh, I don't know, that Jewish guy is not making me feel like I'm equally chosen, you know. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you are. And in fact, he predestined, he determined the destination. He, his, it was his goal that all people would come into the family. Now all of a sudden, this actually makes sense with what else we've, with the other things we've read in Scripture about how it's his desire that none should perish and all this stuff, and that for God so loved the cosmos, the whole world that he gave. Now all of a sudden, those things begin to make sense because this is not about saying who's in and who's out. It's saying that it was God's plan all along to bring everyone into the family. Now, that may not mean much to us because we've had a couple thousand years of non-Jews being Christians, being considered God's people, and so we sort of take it for granted. But when Paul's writing this, there's a long thousands of year history of Jews feeling like we're chosen and we're the only ones that are Yahweh's special people, and the Messiah is our Messiah. Even the ones who believed in Jesus were saying, he's our Messiah. And Paul's saying, yeah, but remember Why were you chosen? To be a blessing to all peoples. And so when Messiah came, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, he was a light to the Gentiles. He was the one who would bring in all peoples. He chose you. What does this mean to us? It means that you're part of the family. It means that you're in. It means that God intended for you to be. It means that he always had in mind that all peoples, people from every tribe and tongue would be gathered in, would be brought in to the family. And then this third phrase he says. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Freely given us. Used The only other time it's used is when the angel says to Mary, you're highly favored, a grace that's freely given out. Maybe a way to say it is he's drenched us in this grace, drenched us in this. You say, well, that's nice, you know, good good for the, you know, non-Jews in the congregation at Ephesus to know that they're in, Cool. I think it has massive implications for us because it means that you and I don't just make a personal, yes, it's about, it's in our hearts, but when you say yes to Jesus, it's not about Jesus and me for the rest of your life. It's not about you saying, oh, well, good, now I've got this, he's my personal Lord and Savior. When you said yes to Jesus, you all of a sudden look up and look around and realize, oh my gosh, 
I'm part of this massive story of salvation. A massive plan of God that began before the creation of the world. A massive operation, if you will, to rescue and remake everything. You're in on that. What do you think about that? You're in on that. You've been brought in to that family. You've been made part of that. All of a sudden, everything becomes different. Now it's not just, well, I'm just doing my itty-bitty job, and I hope that I can find some itty-bitty purpose in this and hope that God will bless me. Now it's saying, wait a second. You wake up every morning, you should say, whoa, I am part of God's massive rescue operation. I just joined up with the greatest story in the world. I just somehow, I, I, I don't know exactly, but because of Jesus and because I said yes to Jesus, I, I, I'm now in the family of God. I am the people of God on the earth. I'm now adopted into the family. I'm chosen. I've been brought in. When you think like that, everything begins to fall in that framework. Then the way we live is not, well, I've got to do this so that God's not mad at me. Then you're saying, you know, I, I want to... Holy Spirit, help me work on this so I don't lose my temper anymore. But it's just because I, I, I'm your kid and I want to look like you. I want to live like you. And then all of a sudden you say, you know what? I, I, I want to do this as unto the Lord. I want to do my work as to the glory of God. I want to be faithful in my marriage to the glory of God. And I want, All the stuff that Paul will later unpack in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. All of a sudden all of that makes sense because we're seeing it through the lens of we've been adopted. We've been brought in. We who didn't used to belong. In, in, in Ephesians 2, Paul kind of hits on this even more. He says, you, you were far off. You had no right to the citizenship of Israel. You lived in the world without God and without hope. Gee, thanks, Paul, for rubbing that in. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, but now you're citizens. Now you're sons and daughters. Now you belong. That is amazing. I think in our American culture, we, we, we see everything through the lens of acceptance and rejection. It's kind of our grid, you know? It's like everything is acceptance and rejection. So even when we come to church, is God like, rejecting me or accepting me? You know? And we have difficulty moving beyond acceptance and rejection because that's like our whole lens for life. Paul is saying, look, look. No, I'm, gonna, I'm about to tell you some pretty strong things about how you should live I'm about to tell you some pretty strong things about behavior that, that does not fit you. In fact, in Ephesians 4, he opens up Ephesians 4 by saying, walk worthy of your calling. I'm about to tell you some, some things. But, 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 but before we get to that, would you lay down this acceptance-rejection issue? Would you understand that you are in the family? That you belong? That you're not a stranger in this house? You're not an outsider you're not some servant that's in the servant house that's second class to the Jews or the real church. Paul's saying this to a church saying, look, I just want you to know all of us are in. All of you that are in Christ are now in God's family. Nothing's going to change that. Okay? Now live this way. Now do this. Now do. And it's impossible for us to talk about behavior and, and quote-unquote ethics. It's impossible for us to talk about any of those things in church unless we get this lens right. 
Because if we don't get this lens right, when a pastor says something about how we should live, then you say, oh, God has rejected me again. And everything comes back to that acceptance rejection lens. And then invariably someone will say, God hasn't rejected you. He just loves you. And don't you worry about what they're saying, those legalists. Don't you worry about trying to be faithful to your spouse, those legalists. God just loves you. And we can't get out of that because everything's about acceptance or rejection. But up front, we've got to know that because of Jesus, who is the Son of God, and we're in Him, guess what we become? The sons and daughters of God. We're in. It's not, not, it's, it's not going to change. I frequently will call Sophia and Nora just at random moments, you know, in the day, and say, hey, come over here. Sophia, come here. You know something? Daddy loves you. I know, Dad. I know. I love you too, Sophia will say, because she's five. And she knows. That's what you're supposed to say back, you know. Nora's three, so she's a little more squirmy and, and maybe a little more honest, I guess. I don't know. But Nora, you know something? Daddy, Daddy loves you. You always say that. That's what she says, you know. So you always say that. Like, no, honey, I, I, I mean that. Daddy, Daddy loves you, you know. Silence, you know. Nora, do you know why Daddy loves you? I don't know. I'm three years old. Daddy loves you because you're my daughter. Will you always be my daughter, Nora? Yes. So I'm always going to love you, right? Yeah. Okay. You're in. Because she's my daughter, I can begin, because they're my children, I can begin to give them instructions about what their chores are and when to clean up and what not to paint on in the house. I can give them instructions about that. But that doesn't change that she's my daughter. And if she messes up and spills the paint on the table, I don't say, you're not my kid. She's my daughter. She's mine. Sophia is mine. Jonas is mine. Not, nothing's going to change that. Church, can you see it? That because of Jesus, when you say yes to the Lordship of Jesus, you're in the family. And God had us in mind. That was the proorismos. That was the destination God had in mind from the very beginning, that you'd be in the family. He had that destination in mind. Like the Gordons, you know, coming back from Florida. They had Colorado in mind as their destination. We're going to get there. God had this destination in mind for you. That doesn't mean we can't say no. We could. And many do. And so tonight, as we close, there may be some of us that say, you know, <laughs> I just sort of thought you just needed to come to church and read your Bible and try to do a few good things and then maybe you won't go to that one fiery hot place. Okay. All right. That's fair. That message is sort of out there, I guess. The real miracle of it is that God intended all along for you to be in his family. And he's made the way for that to happen. He chose you in him, Paul says. He loved you in him, Paul said. That prepositional phrase shows up all the time in Ephesians. In Christ, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him. 
How did this happen? How did it happen that we can be in God's family? Because we're in Christ, in Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, the one. And so if you'd bow your heads tonight, maybe there's some of you that says, you know, would say, you know what, I, um, I've never surrendered. I kind of thought I was just some person here trying to impress God and Hopefully at the end of it all, he doesn't get too mad at me and lets me in. No. No, he wants you to say yes to him, to surrender, so that you can be in the family. The living, that stuff will come. The behavior, that stuff will come. We'll get to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. But right now, can we see the marvelous grace of God that he's drenched us with? lavished us with making us in the family and if you've never done that you've never said yes to Jesus tonight it's just as good a night as any to do that if that's something you've never done before and you want to do tonight would you just raise your hand Father, what a miracle you've become our Father. Not just the God and Father of Abraham, not just the God and Father of Jesus, but our Father, because we're in Jesus. All of us tonight, regardless of our story, of our, the mess we've come from, the stuff, the junk, the things we even wrestle with now, the things that are still struggles Thank you that you're working on us, Holy Spirit, but thank you that we do it from a place of being sons and daughters. Thank you that we, we yeah, we can continue to grow and we can, you can continue to mess with us and change us and improve us and help us to die to ourselves and all of that. We want you to keep working in us, but thank you that you do that in us as people who already are sons and daughters. Thank you that this was the plan you had in mind all along. We love you so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the grace that you've lavished on us, drenched us with. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.